Hello, Clear Skies Ahead listeners. This is Kelly Savoy, and I'm hoping you can take a moment of your time to rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We have produced over 60 episodes, and you can help us reach even more individuals that will benefit from the diverse experiences shared by our guests. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this new episode. Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Emma Collins, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Allison LaFleur, consultant at Rovalus LLC. Welcome, Allison. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Allison, could you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in atmospheric science and how it influenced your educational path? Yeah. um, So in fourth grade, I did a project in school. My teacher did a project on hurricanes, and we were tracking hurricanes during that 2004 season, um, which was a very active season. So there was a lot for us to do in the classroom. Um, And then we also took, you know, weather observations every day, like temperature. She had an old barometer that we played with. And from that point on, I had said, oh, I want to be a meteorologist. I want to go into weather. Um, And I kind of just stuck with that through uh, high school and into college. Um, So when I went to college, I went to uh, what was formerly known as Linden State College. Um, It was a really small school in Vermont. And I was like super excited and just kind of just kept going um, and decided, you know, while I was there to go to grad school and just kind of keep getting a degree and um, that's, it kind of just like naturally happened that way. So did you, um, were you looking into lots of different schools for atmospheric sciences or did you want to just stay locally? Initially I was looking just locally um, partially because of money. Going to college is kind of expensive. Um, So I was lucky to find, there was a couple options in New England because I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, So I looked at, UMass Lowell, Plymouth State, and Linden, and ended up going to Linden. That was a good choice. Do they do um, anything at Linden State, like, for broadcast meteorology as well? Do they have, like, the green screens and all those? Um... Yes. Yeah. They had a or Electronum Journalism Arts. I think the name may have changed. Uh, the school has now also changed names. Um but yeah, they were putting on, you know, a live newscast every day and meteorologists got to go and use the green screen and stuff, which was really cool. Did you ever get that opportunity to go in front of a green screen? I didn't uh, seriously because I was more in, I, like, they tracked us, so I didn't want to go into broadcast. I was deciding to go to grad school, so I took, you know, extra math, chemistry classes. Um, well, I had plenty of friends, though, who did, and it looked very, like, difficult uh, <laughs> to do. <laughs> So what opportunities did you pursue inside and outside of school that you knew would be beneficial to securing a job in your profession? Um, So while I was in undergrad, I didn't, I knew this would be helpful just overall, but now I realized how helpful this position has been. Um, We worked with the local Vermont plows uh, for the state and we would provide them with forecasts for um, snowfall or ice. Um, And in retrospect, that's been really helpful because I got to, you know, learn what it was like working with like a client and not just talking to other classmates or other meteorologists and how to kind of tailor forecasts to 
like meet whatever specific need they had. Um, they were plows. They were obviously more focused on, do we need to go out and plow snow? Or is it going to ice? Do we need to put out treatment on the road? Um, they cared less about, you know, wind and the specifics of, you know, humidity and stuff like that. Um, and then besides that, when I was in undergrad and grad school, but uh, especially grad school, I did a lot of outreach work and I did that at various levels. So, like I worked with a local Girl Scout troop for a while, but I also put on some help put on events for the public or any like little public event the department did, I would help. And that just really gave me um, a good perspective on like how to communicate what we were trying to communicate with people who didn't have a background in science or how to even just tailor conversations or um, yeah, conversations to what interested the person. So if they were interested in like specifically severe weather, you know, I could go talk in that direction or if they were more focused on climate and they were a farmer, you know, you would talk more in that direction. Um, and it was, yeah, that's kind of where I got those skills. So uh, when you first went to college, did you have something in mind that you wanted to do like a certain type of career in meteorology? And then after you took part in some of these internships and, in, in um, opportunities, did anything change? Um, I think when I went into school, I just knew I didn't want to be on TV because I didn't like public speaking, um, which ha that has actually changed. I'm much more comfortable speaking in front of audiences now. But I, at that point, was encouraged to consider going to grad school because I um, had a strong ba math background. So um, I kind of did that. And as I went to grad school, I initially had wanted to go into education and teaching, which is still something I'm interested in. But um, as time went on, I was like, you know what, I am interested in just seeing what else is out there. And kind of when I was applying for jobs, I was applying for just anything that sounded interesting and cool to me, um, which did include some teaching jobs, but also included some private industry and um, consulting jobs, which is what I ended up with. Well, that's a good way to go about it, to have an open mind and because you don't want to, you know, just focus on one thing and then, you know, miss out on a good opportunity elsewhere. Yeah. So your doctoral thesis was on the ZDR arc changes prior to tornado genesis. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and your research leading to your final thesis? Yeah. Um, so that project came about, I was in a research lab, my advisor, um, Dr. Tanamachi was very, er, her research focuses a lot on radar and um, radar with severe weather. So it kind of was a good fit because uh, others in the lab were looking at ZDR columns and I decided to look at ZDR arcs, which are like these regions of large raindrops in um, thunderstorms. And we kind of came about with this because we had a model that had a bunch of storms that were very similar but some had tornadoes, some didn't. So we wanted to really look at the differences in, you know, radar to see how we could use the dual pole radar uh, metrics to, um, like, if we could just help forecast it. It kind of started as a, oh, can we do anything with this? Let's see where this goes. And it turned out into this project. Um, but another piece that influenced it was my lab because it's a radar. It was a radar lab, um, radar and severe weather focus. They would go out storm chasing each year. So um, the hopes was to collect data out in the field that we would then use, like to supplement the project. Um, and it would work well with basically the data we could collect, could, you know, be useful for a couple of projects in the lab, including mine. Um, so that was one of the other reasons. 
and unfortunately didn't really get to use much uh, real world data from chasing because of COVID. We didn't get to go out as many times as we'd hoped, um, but still was able to put together a really cool project. Um, and then a reason the project kind of kept going was at the same time, there was a student in Nebraska, Matt Wilson, who was putting together an algorithm that was automatically identifying a lot of these features in the storms, including ZDR arcs. And so I was like, oh, this is like a perfect tool for me to use so I can automatically identify them, remove that human component if possible. Um, and so it just like a lot of things just kind of naturally fell into place that led the door open to continue this project. That sounds so neat. So for our listeners out there who may be wanting to pursue a PhD, about how long does it take to to get through grad school and then to get your PhD? Is it is it a long time or does it depend on if you're doing it part-time or full-time? It definitely depends. Um, I It took me seven years total. So I started and did two years for my master's in the same lab, the same advisor. And then the next five were my PhD. Um, and I switched projects. So my master's project was slightly different than my PhD project. So that added a little bit of time. But at least in my department and the people I know, it very much depends on kind of your background and what, um, if you're continuing a research project you've done from undergrad, you'll be able to go a little quicker than if you're starting something new in a completely new field. Um, and then there's a lot of random things that'll pop up that will always <laughs> affect it, like the pandemic that happened and uh, added a lot of time to some to a lot of my friends or, you know, labs weren't working and things like that can just um, change the speed. But I would say that like that seven, five, seven years is pretty typical for a Ph.D., you did mention that the pandemic impacted uh, how often you could be out in the field, were, but you, were you still able to go out storm chasing, gathering this data, or did you have to wait for that data to come back to you for your thesis? Um, I had gone out before COVID, so I had been a part of projects beforehand. Um, so I was fortunate, like, not being able to go out the last, like, couple years didn't really impact me much, and I had other data from other sources that I could use for my project. So it was kind of like data we collected would have been a great addition, but not having it didn't really impact me, which I was very fortunate in that regard. So how did you end up where you are today at Rovalis in a private sector, moving from academic to that uh, private consulting position? Yeah. Um, so when I was, I graduated in May. And so I'd been, um, I was also lucky that my closest friends were also graduating around the same time. So we had a lot of like, all right, we're all just sitting looking for jobs together, <laughs> um, which in a way was nice. It pushed some of us to look in areas we wouldn't have necessarily thought to look for a job. Um, and so I um, had come across the posting for Robolis and I was like, oh, this sounds kind of interesting. And it's much, it sounded climate focused, which is something that I also had you know, always have climate change in the back of my mind and something I'm interested in communicating. Um, so I applied and then when I, I heard from them and I did a couple interviews with the, the employees and the head and stuff. Um, and it was the weekend I was moving that I got the call saying they wanted to offer me the job. So it was a bit of a chaotic weekend. I like am packing my truck to or my dad drove with me, but from Indiana to Massachusetts. And they're like, here, why don't you start in two weeks? And it was good, but a little hectic. So could you walk us through a typical day on the job as a consultant? Yeah. Um, so a typical day is 
I will get up and get started and, you know, check my emails. And uh, one thing with the company is it's all remote. So people are all over the country and I am one of the only ones on the East Coast. So getting up in the morning, I tend to like get something like out of the way right away because it's kind of some quiet time for myself. But then the day will include just working on whatever project is deemed high priority at the moment. Um, sometimes that includes having meetings with, because um, Rovalis works with airports, so um, meeting with you know other um, coworkers and then people at these airports to talk about whatever project we're working on. Um, and this can be things from, you know, kind of quantifying the noise pollution in the area if they're changing like flight paths for airplanes. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, talking with the, the airports, it's like, all right, where is this data coming from? How can we get this? Or just talking about what assumptions we want to make. Um, another common task is doing greenhouse gas emission inventory. So that includes a lot of data collection. And um, primarily I've been, when I, we get the data, I'll go through it and, you know, try to be like, all right, this list of gas receipts goes to these vehicles or these are for the generators or these are for, you know, whatever equipment. Um, so that process can be quite tedious at times, but it's very like, you know, making sure we're not double counting anything and um, doing that. And then, so yeah, I'm kind of just doing whatever. It's very, it's different day to day, which is actually kind of nice. Um, but we do have these, these projects that are overarching for, you know, a period of time. But um, what I'm doing specifically might change. There's also quite a bit of writing. So I'll spend some time each day writing up kind of what I've found. Do you have certain clients assigned to you or is it, uh, well, how big is the company? Is it a large company or is it pretty small? It's a pretty small company. Um, I believe that there's four, about four full-time workers and then a couple similar amount of part-time workers. Um, so while like one person might be the primary contact for um, a client, we all kind of will pitch in on all the projects because um, each person has like a different sort of area that they are the strongest in. So yeah, I, th I think it's good that it, it's small, you know, because yeah. you get a lot more hands-on experience and you learn a bunch of different things because yes. they're <laughs> relying on a small workforce. And do you enjoy the work from home aspect, being remote, um, even like you're not in an office communicating with your other coworkers, but um, moving from maybe an environment where you did have your fellow classmates around all the time? How has that change been? Uh, so far, I've liked it in it. Um, because I was moving, it was kind of convenient. I didn't have to, when I got offered the job, all of a sudden be like, all right, I need to move somewhere different than I was planning. Um, and it does give you quite a degree of flexibility, which is nice. So say I need to run, like I had an eye doctor's appointment last week. I didn't have to take time off of work to do that. I could just, you know, mark myself as a way for a little bit, go to the appointment and then work, you know, still work the full day. Um, so I have enjoyed that. Um, I could see the social aspect is definitely different because I'm not, you know, seeing people day to day, but I right now am uh, staying with my parents. So like I know people in the area. So that social piece that would maybe be missing, I am getting, you know, I'm around people I know from childhood right now. So that is helpful. Um, but one nice thing is the company had been remote pre-COVID. So they kind of have figured out how to do the, you know, communication. We have a weekly meeting that we're chatting and everyone has each other's phone numbers and emails and teams and stuff. So we stay in pretty good contact with each other. 
Yeah, we're all really used to Zoom now, so (laughs) you can see people that way. Yes. (laughs) Touched on it where you said that having different projects every day was was a good kind of exciting aspect of the job. But are there other aspects in particular have you found the most interesting uh, as you're consulting? Um, I think one has been, so the company, since they primarily work with airports, it's much more airline focused, which is not what my background is in specifically. Um, It's been really cool to see how some of this atmosphere knowledge can really be applied. It's very, very applied meteorology as opposed to some of that more theoretical that I had been doing in the past. And that's been really cool to kind of like connect the dots to be like, oh, we could use this, you know, idea from meteorology or from my, that I read about somewhere and use it to connect to, you know, this airport's goal of being, of reducing carbon emissions or... Um, something like that. So it's just been like that. Feels like I'm just like learning about a whole new kind of sector of the world, which is kind of cool. And in a small environment like that, do you find that your ideas are very much welcome and that you get a chance to kind of like share your particular niche um, with these other people who have their own specialties and the conversation flows well? Yes, definitely. Yeah, we're really, um, everyone's been really receptive to listening to like each other is thinking about and, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other. Are there any challenges that surprised you about environmental planning services? Um, one challenge was that um, because data is coming from a lot of different sources, you know, they're not all um, standard or like the what data is given to you can be quite different. Um, so that was something I had, which, you know, in research, data is not always in the same format or the same, you know, units and stuff like that, but there was some degree of kind of uniformity that I didn't realize was there until I had moved into more consulting and you're getting this this data from just very different people um, from very different places. Uh, So that was something that surprised me and I had to kind of get used to like, oh, this is not all going to look the same. I can't just like do some automatic like data analysis like I had done before. I'm going to have to, you know, go into the data first and manipulate it before you're really looking at it. So you have only been here for like a couple months, but where do you see your career taking you or what do you hope to accomplish with this kind of a consulting background? Are you enjoying it? Do you think you'll head in that direction long term or you had touched on uh, that you wanted to teach, I think? Yeah, right now I um, am thinking about I've been enjoying it and haven't really like I've been liking it. And I know having the, the consultant can take you in a lot of different directions. Um, so I think having this consulting experience in conjunction with the atmospheric science, I could really get into a lot more of that, yeah, environmental planning and um, something that I've always been interested in is, as I mentioned before, climate change and climate change outreach. So that's an area I could see myself moving into is going in directions where it's like helping either companies or people or whoever um, really trying to combat climate change in whatever way they can whether it's through their job or community or, you know, whatever. So that's kind of right now what I see. Um, But I'm definitely open to still, still very early career. So (laughs) open to seeing kind of just what happens that really worked well for me with grad school. So kind of keep that up. (laughs) So I will put a plug in for our, one of our certification programs, which once you get a few more years under your belt, I don't know if you're familiar with our certified consulting meteorologist program, but um, that would be 
an excellent certification since you're doing consulting. And if you continue with it for a few years, um, you know, just keep that on your radar. It would, it would be a good opportunity to apply for something like that. Yeah, definitely. What advice do you have for our listeners who are hoping to find employment in the private sector? Did you find that there were certain skills that most of these organizations were looking for? Do you have advice on maybe coursework that um, students can take or any other advice? Yeah. Um, one piece of advice, which I feel like is now just when I started school was to you know, always take a coding class. And I have found that having you know, some computer skills has been very beneficial because um, even if I didn't have the specific program that a job was looking for, I would have um, enough like background knowledge that I knew I'd be able to either pick it up where they're like, oh, you have done this, then picking up that project will be not too difficult. Um, but another big one that I have the last couple of years has been data analysis and data science and being able to deal with big data sets and big data, which when I was in grad school, that kind of noticed that was becoming much more and more popular and had really seen it when I was then looking for jobs. Is a lot of people, they care. It wasn't so much important what specifically you looked at unless you were going into a research-focused position. It was, can you use these programs and manipulate this data or analyze this data to get some sort of conclusion? Um, it was like really that data analysis skill. Well, Allison, we're so grateful for everything that you've told us about your career. However, before you go, we always like to ask our guests one fun question at the end of the show. So what is your favorite hobby? Um, right now, my favorite hobby has been, I've been getting into embroidery and cross-stitching, which is very like different and random. I used to be someone much more into, like I had done ballet and jujitsu and all these sports, but this one has been fun and it's very relaxing, which has been very needed over the last you know, six months. I was thinking that exactly. I was like, I would love to learn that because it just seems, it seems like if you've had a stressful day and then you're just sitting doing that and you have, you know, you're just focusing on that. It, it must be really nice. Is it, I've never done it. Is it a difficult thing to learn or is it easy to pick it up? I, I found it pretty easy to pick up. Um, I did know how to do basic sewing like beforehand, like, you know, when I had a hole in a pair of leggings, I could patch it. I couldn't do anything much more than that. Um, but I first picked up a kit that was for like five, six year old. And I was like, great, let me try this kit. If I like it, because if I don't like the kid version, I'm not going to like it for adults. That's, that's and, a good way to approach it. <laughs> um, and it was also like on clearance for like $2 somewhere. So I did it and I was like, oh, this is actually really fun. And using kits initially was definitely very helpful. Pretty easy to pick up, um, fortunately. Can you, can you go, like, does it take a long time to finish something? Like, is it, is it kind of tedious that way? Or once you get the hang of it, do, do things go quickly? It definitely, like the first ones definitely took longer than I um, probably, I probably could have done those projects a bit quicker now, but it really depended on what I was doing. So like the first one I did, since it was for a kid, it was like a heart and a sun. Like that didn't take me that long. But then one that I've been working on now, it was like a cat with some plants kind of around it. Um, that was a little more intricate because you had to do each individual leaf and um, there was a design on the pot. So that took a little bit longer just because you had to change the thread a lot more. There was more colors to go through. Um, so yeah, it's very like depends. So you can kind of, you can do a lot of fast projects if that's what you prefer. Or I've seen some people do really intricate things that I know would take me probably months. Is it is it just a, a needle? 
Just a regular needle? Yep. Is that how you do it? Yeah. Yeah. Needle and then like thread. If you think of like the thread that you, the most common ones that I've seen at least, I'm um, still kind of new to this. It's like that friendship bracelet thread. Oh yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Just that needle cloth. I will say uh, I've done cross stitching and it is a lot of fun. I do like it a lot. Um, it's also a great way to listen to a podcast. Um, may I recommend the Clear Skies Ahead podcast? <laughs> but it's really fun because you definitely do get to disconnect and you're following a grid so you can focus on the podcast and kind of like start doing the motions pretty rotely. Um, I, I absolutely agree. It's a lot of fun. Well, I'll have to put that on my Christmas list. <laughs> Thanks, Allison, for for describing it and um giving me a little bit of positive feedback that, yes, I can actually do this. I will get the kitty version first, <laughs> as you suggested. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, Allison, and sharing your work experiences with us. Thank you for having me again. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is edited by Johnny Lay, Technical direction is provided by Peter Killalay. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Emma Collins and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org forward slash clear skies, and you can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or would like to become a future guest. <laughs>